Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of 2 Timothy, we're continuing our study of that, of that letter from Paul to Timothy. And we're going to, we're going to continue a study of a passage we began uh, last Sunday. And Lord willing, we're going to spend one more Sunday in it. We're going to look at mainly 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And if you're able to do so, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, give ear to the word of God. Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, we started last Sunday. We looked, uh, began to look at Paul's um, forceful exhortation or charge. He, he, the ESV says charge to Timothy, this young pastor, his child in the faith, his apprentice in some ways. And what was he charging him to do? He charged him to preach the word, verse 2. And so I think last Sunday we kind of briefly looked at, a, at some things that I think are worthwhile for us to spend a little bit more time on, looking at in more detail um, here in our text, Timothy does a couple things, uh, at least in brief form. He, uh, he charges Timothy to preach the word of God to the people of God. But he also gives us, as we're going to see this morning, Lord willing, some reasons and motivations for doing so. He gives Timothy some reasons, uh, some very forceful reasons why he should preach the word and why we in the church today those who are in the ministry should be careful to preach the word of God as well in our day also. Uh, and these reasons, I think, should impress upon us, among other things, the seriousness and the urgency of biblical preaching. The urgency of preaching God's word. You could say that a great many of the problems in the church, and because of that, really in the world today, in some ways, can be traced, I think, to a lack of sound biblical preaching in our pulpits, in our churches, and on top of that, maybe not unrelated to that, to a faulty, unbiblical understanding and expectation of what preaching is supposed to be in the first place. I think sometimes we in the church, we tolerate uh, substandard, unbiblical preaching because we're not sure what it's supposed to be in the first place. And bad things certainly result uh, as, a, as a result of that. In verse, in verse 1, Paul impresses upon us the necessity and the urgency uh, of preaching the word of God. And then in verse 2, he describes briefly why, what such preaching must consist of. So he tells him the reasons for preaching the word essentially in verse 1, and then he gives us, at least in some small way, a picture of what preaching ought to be in verse 2, so the Lord willing, this morning we're going to spend most of our time on the former of those, that is, you could say the why of preaching the word of God, and then next Sunday again, Lord willing, we'll look at the latter in verse 2, that is the what of preaching or what biblical preaching ought to look like. So the first of these reasons or motivations that Paul impresses upon us in Timothy for preaching the word of God, the first one of these things, there's three of them, the first one is the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. The presence of God and Christ Jesus. Look again at verses 1 and 2, especially verse 1. He says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. 
who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. So one of the reasons, one of the motivating factors for Timothy and for us today uh, to minister the word of God faithfully is the presence of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the things we see here is this charge that, Timoth- that, that Paul gives to Timothy, he, the charge itself is given in the presence of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, person, the persons of the Godhead are literally called upon as witnesses to this charge and Timothy's solemn obligation to it, to preach the word. And that is the case to, to, to every pastor in our day as well. You know, when we have ordination services, when we had ours here with myself and with Rob, uh, there is often given a charge In fact, when we were particularized uh, over a year ago now, about a year and a half ago, shockingly to think how fast time has flown, uh, there was a charge given to myself, there was a charge given to Rob, there was a charge given to you you all who were here as the church. And in doing that, it's not just a a formal way of doing something, we're literally, literally to take that as a charge in the presence of God. It's as if we're putting our right hand up and, and making an oath before God and before the church to do what we're being called to do. And so God, you know, we often say things, maybe we don't say it often, but we hear the saying, you know, God is my witness. When we want to tell somebody that we're, we're really telling the truth. Well, God is witness either for or against pastors if they do or don't preach God's word. It's a serious thing to enter into the gospel ministry. Now, how often do we, not just pastors, how often do we take vows before God and before others, whether it be marriage vows, church membership vows, ordination vows, even vows related to public office? We still do that in this country as far as I know. How often do we take vows and then kind of just without any thought just sort of willy-nilly break them and violate them without a second thought as if God is not a witness against us when we do such things brings to mind a quote that Carl Truman said in his book the creedal imperative I think I've quoted it before but I think it bears repeating he says this what never ceases to amaze me is the casual way in which people make and break membership vows sometimes within weeks I have seen individuals leave the church because they were not given the Sunday school teaching opportunities they thought They deserved because they did not like the worship style and because their children found a more interesting church elsewhere. That such reasons do not give any grounds for breaking vows never seems to register. Indeed, some leave without giving any reason at all. So lightly do they regard solemn vows taken before God and the church. I mean, I've, we've been, this church has been here for about 30 years or so. I've been here for about 12. And we've seen all these exact kind of things happen. It's not, it's not unique to us. It's not new. It's, as we can hear from his quote, it happens all the time. But it shouldn't. We've certainly seen these kinds of things. Now, now there must be said, there are, there are valid reasons. There is a time to leave a church. Sad to say. Uh, There are definitely reasons to leave, but many both join and leave churches for all the wrong reasons without warrant. And God himself is witness to it. You know, when you think of of the statistics, and I don't know what to always make of them, 
uh, of divorce among professing Christians. I don't think they're as high as people make them out to be. I think there's some numbers that skew those. There's some things that kind of skew those numbers, but they're still way too high. They're still far, far too high among professing Christians. The promise of the presence of Christ among us is certainly intended to encourage us in a number of things. It's meant to encourage us in the work of evangelism. Think of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Uh, There Jesus Christ, our Lord, says the following. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth. In other words, all authority in the created universe has been given to him, right? It's been given to me. Go, therefore, because of that authority, go, therefore, and do what? Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Sounds like the whole counsel of God being taught, right? But then what does he say in the very last part of verse 20? And behold, or lo, I am what? With you always to the end of the age. So what does that mean? It means a lot of things, and I won't preach a sermon under in, in the midst of a sermon, but it means disciples will be made. He, he's not just saying, go make disciples of all nations because I told you so, and I'm in charge. That That's true, right? If that, if that were all it meant, that should be enough for us to be evangelizing and making disciples of all the nations. When he says he has all authority in heaven and on earth, he's saying things will get done. That he'll, he'll, he'll use, you know, as, as somebody always says, he'll draw straight lines with a crooked stick. He'll use even worthless people like us to make disciples somehow. Because all, all power and authority has been given to him. And as if we weren't sure, he says he'll be with us always in that work, he's saying, even to the end of the age. So the all-surpassing power and authority of Christ, but also his presence with us is intended to spur us on and give us great confidence in making disciples of all the nations. But the presence of Christ also ought to have a sanctifying influence on our worship as well, shouldn't it? Including the preaching of God's word. I think it's sometimes a lack of mindfulness of the presence of Christ and the fear of God, frankly, among us in worship among other things, that has led to much of what I call liturgical chaos in the church. People just doing whatever is right in their own eyes with very little or no thought about what God would have them do or not do in church. I think these things have led to flippancy in worship. And even sometimes I'll I'll go as far as to say blasphemy in times in the worship of many churches today. Things that are done in churches that should never be done and would never be done, would never dare to be done by people, especially our ministers and pastors, if they were mindful of the fact that Jesus Christ is there among the church as we meet. It should change how we worship. I think that's what happens when we lose sight of the admonition of the writer of the book of Hebrews, where he tells us in Hebrews 12, 28, and 29, he says, Therefore... Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And here it is. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. How? With reverence and awe, for our God is, not was, is a consuming fire. In other words, that, that God in the Old Testament, when the, when the mountain was all you know, fi- lit up on fire and they heard the voice and the people trembled and were afraid to come near the mountain, 
That God has not changed. He is still to be worshipped with godly fear, with reverence and awe. Have we forgotten about the presence of the exalted Christ among us, especially in our worship and in the preaching and teaching of God's word? In Matthew 18:20, Jesus says this, which is a precious promise to most of us, I hope. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You know, I, I, we, we often, uh, I often joke, sort of joke, that our church is a micro-megachurch. We're, we're not a megachurch in number, uh, but Jesus says just two or three. We're thankfully more than two or three. We may not have too many, but we have two or three or more. And what does he promise there? When there's two or three of, of the believers gathered together in worship or in church discipline or whatever thing it may be, where's Jesus? He's there. Even as in the book of Revelation, remember that picture in Revelation 1 of Jesus? I don't remember the exact description, but the, you know, the sword out of his mouth and the hair with white as snow and all these things. And where was he? He's walking in the midst of the lampstands. And what are the lampstands? The churches. And the messengers in those, in those churches. And so when he says that where two or three are gathered in his name, he's there among them. One of the things that should bring trembling to us and I think to every pastor and preacher is Jesus is present at every sermon. Every sermon you will ever hear, he is there listening. He is there observing. And that's not always a good thing, depending on what's being preached. The presence of God, the presence of the Lord of glory among us in worship ought to serve as a motivating factor to say the least for every pastor to be sure that he is faithfully proclaiming the word of Christ and making known the whole counsel of God and nothing else it should transform every pastor's work, especially in the pulpit. The second reason or second motivating factor that Paul presses upon us in order that the word of God might be proclaimed faithfully is not just the presence of Christ, but also the judgment of Christ. The judgment of Christ. Look again at verses 1 and 2, especially verse 1. He says, I charge you, first what? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Here is the second one. Who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Every sermon that you ever hear, every sermon that someone in this pulpit preaches should be done in, in, in light of the truth that Christ is going to come one day to judge the living and the dead. What, what should that mean? That could be a whole other sermon uh, on that topic. Maybe it should be a whole other sermon on that topic. It means, among other things, it means we shouldn't trifle with men's souls by entertaining them. We shouldn't be flippant. Sermons should not be primarily entertaining. They shouldn't put you to sleep, I hope, but they, shouldn't, they aren't meant to be entertaining at all. I remember years ago, uh, Dr. James Boyce, uh, every once in a while you hear somebody say something and it just sticks. And he mentioned, you know what the word etymology means? It means that the, the different parts of a word describe what it means. And he, he told us what the etymology of the word amusement was. And what does the word muse mean? You're doing it right now. Your hand is on your chin. You're thinking. To muse is to think or to ponder. And what does the little letter A in the front of that word mean? It means to not think. 
You don't go to amusement parks to think. When you get older, you think about not going to amusement parks, right? But you don't, you don't go there to think. You, in other words, it, you, you get distracted from thinking. You're doing anything but thinking. We are, as one writer says, amusing ourselves to death. Neil Postman, a terrific book I recommend to you, uh, to your reading if you haven't already read it. The preaching should not be amusing. There should be thought involved. We should be thinking about God, about the fact that Christ is going to judge the living and the dead. We should be preaching in such a way as the people who are listening have eternal souls that one day everyone in this room, everyone watching at home, is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if you're not clothed in Christ's righteousness alone, heaven is not your home. The preaching should reflect that that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that Christ has come and died and rose again. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, that chapter we think about with the, all about the resurrection, which we're going to look at tonight, by the way, in Bible study. What does Paul say in, in verses 1 through, through 3? He said he delivered to them what was given to him of first importance. And what does he mention? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and then he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. The death and resurrection of Christ are central. And why is that? Not just because they happened, but because that's the message of the gospel, the message of men's redemption and salvation from sin. You know, it's remarkable how often Paul and the other apostles make mention of the judgment to come in their writings and in their sermons. In, in, the, in the book of Acts, for example, Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching before the Areopagus, these pagan philosophers who probably didn't know the, script, the Old Testament scriptures, or maybe they did, I don't know. But listen to what he says in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. Paul, you know, you could say in some sense, Paul had one shot. These folks weren't going to come hear him every Sunday. And what does he say? He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked... But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's not being very winsome, is he? He's not being very seeker friendly. He commands all people. Who does? God does. He commands all people everywhere. In other words, you guys too. The people in the Areopagus. To repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's a day of judgment coming. And who is the judge of the living and the dead? We confess it every time we recite the, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, is also the judge. And if anybody is more fit to be the judge than him because of that very thing, I can't imagine it. He came and died to save sinners. If we will go on in our rebellion, we have nothing to say to the judge. If he has died for our sins, for the sins of, 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 of men. You know, Paul preached the need for repentance. He did not shy away from mentioning the certainty of the just judgment of Jesus Christ on that last day. We confess again that belief. It's an essential truth of the Christian faith. We say he shall come again to judge the living and the dead, or rather the, the Nicene Creed says he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. The Apostles' Creed, 
he shall come from hence uh, to judge the living and the dead. Now, Paul's reference to the just judgment of Christ in relation to his charge to preach the word, I think, can be considered in at least two ways. There's two different aspects or ways of looking at it. I don't think that they are uh, exclusive of each other. I think they kind of go together. The first is that there is a judgment that applies to those who teach and preach the word of God. There's a frightening thought. Still want to be a pastor or a preacher? The fool's going to do it. You know, who, who do we get to volunteer? There is a judgment that applies to those who preach and teach God's word. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Probably a familiar text to most of you. Listen to what it says. James 3, 1 through 5. James the apostle says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Now, when, when he has to say that, I think there's an implication that many thought they should be. I don't think James is just writing things for hypotheticals that never would happen. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Why? For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Everybody gets judged, but preachers and teachers get judged a little more strictly. For we all stumble. Why? For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, a small body part. Yet it boasts of great things. And then he says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Preaching when it's not faithful to scripture can do a lot of damage. Can it? Notice that James graciously includes himself there. We who teach, he says. We who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment. But he says that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, or the King James says, the greater condemnation. Doesn't mean every teacher is going to be condemned, it's just, but it's the same word. And why is that? Partly, at least, because of the damage that can be done through false teaching. Remember, he, he equates it to a forest fire. People living in Ramona know a little bit or two about wildfires and the like. That's what, that's what bad preaching is like. If you were here for the, the wildfires, I know many of you were, that's what Paul or James equates false teaching to. The damage, the widespread, fast-moving damage that can be done. A due consideration of James' admonition there in those verses, I think, would serve many well if it kept them from daring to put themselves forward as teachers and preachers among God's flock. And yet people just throw themselves forward to do, this, do these things. Sadly, I think it's clear that this warning to this day has gone largely unheeded. The other thing, the other manner in which Paul's words about judgment, uh, the judgment of Christ to come, might also be understood as that which applies to our hearers. Not just the preachers themselves, but the hearers of these sermons who are sinners in need of salvation. If our preaching does not consist in the proclamation of God's word and of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then our hearers will not hear the words of life. 
They will not hear the message of salvation through faith in Christ alone. And that should never be. How awful and terrible a judgment awaits those who twist the gospel and preach a false gospel. Remember Paul's words in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 9. You know, Paul's letters, most of them, they start off with a kind of a gracious greeting. You know, something about Paul thanking God for them and all these things. Not Galatians. And there's a, there's a very good reason for it. Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9 He says, I am astonished. I'm shocked. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then listen to his words here. But even if we or an angel from heaven, no, Paul himself or an angel, even if we ourselves uh, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be what? Accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, the one that Paul preached to them, let him be accursed. Paul says it twice just to make sure they didn't think he was speaking in haste or writing in haste. Be careful how I say this, but what's Paul saying? The word he uses there for accursed is anathema. Literally, the word anathema. What does that mean? It means let them stand condemned before God at the judgment. He's talking about going to hell. That's what he's saying. I mean, that's, that should jar our ears or our, or our eyes, but that's what he's saying. That's how serious it is to preach a false gospel, to preach a gospel that is in any way contrary to the one found in Scripture. Paul's not overreacting, is he? We might sort of at first think he is. Wow, it's an awfully strong thing for Paul to say. But it's not an overreaction when the glory of God and the salvation of the lost is, is at stake. How dare anyone preach anything other than the whole counsel of God and the true gospel of Christ? To do anything other is to trifle with the souls of sinners in need of the Savior. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy, among other things, is let the judgment that is to come, the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns, constrain us in the preaching and teaching of the word of God in our churches. Last but not least, and Certainly there's more reasons than this, but the third reason that Paul gives, the third motivating factor that he gives us in order that the word of God might be faithfully preached and proclaimed uh, is not just the presence of Christ, not just the judgment of Christ, which is to come, but also the kingdom of Christ. Look again at verses 1 and 2. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Here it is. And by his appearing... And his kingdom preach the word. When Paul speaks of Christ appearing in his kingdom, I think he's talking about the return of Christ in glory, which will mark not only the judgment of the living and the dead, but also the consummation of his kingdom and glory. I think in some ways he's emphasizing the reward and glory that's promised to every faithful believer in Christ and every faithful servant 
of the Lord. And I think that is something that ought to motivate every one of us who believe much more than it probably does for most of us. You know, the kingdom, it's a topic I've been trying to read up on more and more. It's one of those topics that, you know, if you were to look up or note in your Bible every time you see a mention, especially in the New Testament, of the word kingdom, whether it's kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of Christ, whatever the case may be, I think you and I would be shocked at how many times it comes up. The first message of Christ, we looked at the Gospel of Mark probably a few years ago or so now. The first message of, 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 of Mark, of Jesus in Mark's Gospel in chapter 1, Jesus says, The kingdom is, of heaven is at hand. Repent, therefore, and believe the Gospel. Like, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. When he was with the disciples after his resurrection in the book of Acts, it says he spent 40 days teaching them about what? The kingdom. When you read Paul's letters, he mentions it in passing over and over and over again. It's What's the saying? I always get this wrong. Is it if it was a dog, it would bite you or a snake? But whatever, in other words, it's right in front of your face, and we just don't think about it much. And yet we should. Paul speaks himself in this very letter, just a few verses down the page, of the gracious reward that awaited him in glory. Just a handful of verses after this one. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And then what does he say? Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. If you're a believer, he's talking about you. There's a reward on that last day calls it the crown of righteousness not our own but that of christ on that last day the blessed reward of the saints and glory will far outstrip any and all sufferings that we are made to endure for the name of christ in this life paul says as much elsewhere in romans chapter 8 verses 18 and 19 he says for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are what? Are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed, uh, ESV says, to us. I believe it should say, in us. Are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Why? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What does that mean? I can't give you a good description. Paul, knew, he knew a lot more about suffering in the present time than any of us in this room, I believe. And he still wrote that. All the things, remember the things Paul endured, shipwrecks, beatings, stonings, left for dead in danger from his own countrymen, chased from, literally chased from one city to the next. Eventually martyred under Caesar Nero in Rome. He was beheaded, according to church tradition, uh, under Nero in Rome for preaching the gospel. And he says, not even worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed. And his, his crown of righteousness was something he looked forward to, which enabled him to endure all things for the sake of the elect. 
In speaking of Christ's kingdom and his consummation and glory on that last day, we are in some way reminded of the nature of preaching and its aim. To preach the word of Christ is to be a herald of the king of kings. It's a message of the king about his kingdom and the way into it. It is to proclaim the reign and the kingdom of the king of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as as preachers, pastors, ministers, whatever you want to call it, we are not called to preach or teach in order to build our own little brands. We are not here to build our own little kingdoms. We're not sent to gather a following, certainly not to gather fans. The ministers of the gospel are servants of Christ. And our aim as such must always be the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the glory of his name, period. What does John the Baptist say? The same thing we should say. He must increase and we must what? Decrease. It's not about us. It's about his kingdom and his glory. We as believers in Christ are taught over and over in scripture that we should be kingdom oriented. Christ's kingdom. We should be kingdom oriented. In, in the Lord's prayer, what does Jesus teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. We should be praying for God's kingdom to come, both the kingdom in this life, but especially the kingdom of glory when he returns and all things will be made right. He also tells us in Matthew 6.33, but seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, what things? The things we worry about. Food and clothing and everything else will be added to us. We aren't to seek those things primarily. What are we supposed to seek first and foremost? God's kingdom. And he promises us, look, seek the kingdom first. I'll take care of all that stuff. Don't spend all your time focused on that stuff. God will provide. He always does. The thought of Christ's kingdom of glory consummated, all creation being made new, and yours and mine entering into our rest and reward should change how we live this life. It's hard to keep that kind of stuff in mind, but that's why we have church every Sunday, isn't it? Among other things. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Listen again to a passage you probably heard read a million times. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16, he says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, here it is, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he returns, is what he's talking about. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Sometimes you read those verses kind of separate from each other and not in the context. Context is always important. He tells us that one of the results of setting our hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to us when Christ returns is that we will be more and more convinced to live holy even as God himself is holy. First John, I believe, says, I forget the reference, but you can look it up later. He says, everyone who sets his hope, who has this hope in him, in Christ, purifies himself even as he, Christ, is pure. Well, what hope is that? The hope of Christ's returning glory and taking us home to be with him forever. 
John Stott, I think, sums up the message of our text well when he writes the following. He says, now these three truths, the appearance or, or the presence, the appearance, the judgment, and the kingdom should be as clear and certain an expectation to us as they were to Paul and Timothy. They cannot fail to exert a powerful influence on our ministry for both those who preach the word and those who listen to it must give an account to Christ when he appears. May both Christ's presence in the here and now with us as well as his coming in glory on that last day to judge the living and the dead and for the consummation of his kingdom and glory, may those things, those truths spur us on, you and me both, to live for his glory and for his kingdom, looking forward to our reward in heaven with him forever. And may that transform not only the preaching of his word in our church and elsewhere, but also transform our lives as well. Amen.